This episode may contain content of a graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. I'm Nikki. And I'm Mariah. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Body to Burial. Welcome back, everybody, to Body to Burial this week. We're so glad you're here with us. Before we get started this week, I just wanted to remind everyone, please take five minutes, less than that, probably more like three minutes, and leave us a comment or review or hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to. It tremendously helps us, and Nikki and I will forever be so grateful. And if you would like a different, uninterrupted experience of listening to the episodes, head over to our Patreon page, Body to Burial, where you can get access to ad-free episodes, bonus episodes. We have photos that the guests have provided for us fun little side bits there so definitely head over there and last final thing unless Nikki has something we also announced April's book club pick so if you are reading alongside us whether through the patreon group which is again another fun little thing that we have as a patreon option you can join us for live book clubs you get some cool body to burial bookmarks and a candle and all sorts of good jazz or you can read independently uh april's pick is if you really loved me by ann rule so go pick that up on your kindle or the bookstore and join alongside us. I think that that's all the little things that I have for us. Nikki, you have anything? No, I think that's it. Okay, sweet. Well, let's uh, jump on over to the guests then. So today we have joining us Matt or Matthew Murphy, who is a homicide prosecutor. So we're going to have Matt come on and he's going to talk to us about being a prosecutor. Ooh, that's fun. Right? I think it should be neat. He's got some some heavy experience under his belt, so I think he will be quite enjoyable. He worked on, and I know you know this, Nikki, because we watched it on Netflix, but he was involved with Dirty John. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's neat. That's, I, yeah, and I listened to the podcast. You know, we loved that. Uh-huh. So I knew you'd recognize that one. So yeah, kind of without further ado, I feel like let's just jump into it. Okay. All right, here we go. Let me grab it. Okay. Matthew, thanks for making the time. We appreciate it. You bet. Yeah, no, happy to. Happy to. And I know you're a homicide prosecutor. I am a former homicide prosecutor. So I kind of want to focus primarily on that bit of your background, but then we'll talk about what you currently do too. Okay. Okay. So Orange County, California, I was a deputy DA there for 26 years, um, left in 2019 as a senior deputy district attorney, which is the highest rank for the trial lawyers. I didn't want to go into management. I spent a uh, little under four years in the sexual assault unit. Uh, you start out misdemeanors, then you go to juvenile for a while, and then you go to what's called the felony panel, which is generic felonies. And then from there, it's almost like an NFL draft. You finish up your panel tour and you get drafted to different units. And I went to sexual assault. And then from there, I went to homicide, where I spent 17 years. So the way the homicide unit in Orange County works is it's called a regionally divided vertical unit. So what that means is it's regionally divided. So I was assigned the cities of Costa Mesa, Laguna Beach, Newport Beach, and Irvine. And it's vertical, meaning we would follow the cases from the beginning all the way up. So a little bit like your podcast, from body to burial, we would go from the crime scene to the sentencing and handle it each step of the way. So I would get called out in the middle of the night whenever there's a murder in any of those four cities. I go with my assigned investigator in the DA's office, who's a sworn police officer, and we roll out to the scene. Sometimes I'd take my paralegal with me, um, sometimes law clerks, and you'd go to these murder scenes. And then I would assist detectives with generating search warrants. I would do everything I could in my feeble ability to actually help them solve the crime. Um, and then I was the decision maker. I was the one that determined when we had enough evidence, who to charge, what to charge against whom. I would always try to involve my detectives as much as I could. In these decisions. And then as a homicide prosecutor, you, once you make the decision who to charge, I would always meet with the victim's family. I would give them an orientation about what to expect in the ensuing years regarding procedures, what the case looked like, whether or not it was a death penalty or not a death penalty type thing, and sort of walk them through the process. I'd always give them my personal cell so they could call me anytime and whenever they had questions. 
these are, as you can imagine, you know, in the in in the things we can experience as as humans in the course of our of our short little lives, the most brutal thing I think anybody can ever. So essentially, it was my job to walk them through that process and then present evidence for the preliminary hearing. Eventually, pick a jury, present evidence in front of the jury, do opening statements. Uh, closing arguments and then sentencing. And I did, I tried 52 cases while I was in the homicide unit. I did, I went up with uh, separate capital trials. I was on a thing called the Special Circumstances Committee. So I was one of the experienced homicide prosecutors chosen by the district attorney to review uh, what are known as special circumstance homicides. So most murders are not special circumstances. So like a domestic violence murder, for example, those are not special circ homicides. Special circumstance homicides are things like murder committed during the course of a rape, kidnapping, or a robbery, or arson, um, or when there's multiple victims, or there's a some sort of other depraved, horrific motive. Um, and we would review those cases to determine whether or not the recommendation to the elected district attorney was to seek the death penalty or not. We would also review police officer-involved shootings for the determination of whether or not um, the shooting was done lawfully. We would go to parole hearings across the state uh, to review the, the parole dates of what are called lifers or essentially previous cases where the person had been convicted of murder out of Orange County. That was part of our job, too. We'd go to the prisons and participate in parole hearings on that. And, uh, yeah, I also I trained young prosecutors uh, regarding the fundamentals of things like cross-examination or closing argument. Um, yeah, so that was pretty much, that was the job. Amazing. So I have one question so far, a clarifying question. When you had mentioned in the beginning that, you know, you would get phone calls in the middle of the night to go to a crime scene and you would bring your paralegals and things like that. That's pretty abnormal, right? That's not a stand, I guess, for your area, that was normal, but that's not, is that, protocol everywhere because i've I've, haven't really heard of that no almost nobody else does it that way uh you have such an in-depth appreciation for everything that's going on um when you walk into a murder scene first of all you you see the professionalism of the detectives who are there at three o'clock in the morning and the crime lab personnel and you actually you see them doing their jobs and it is you know you, you see how dedicated they are and and also you know it's it sort of goes without saying but you you understand the enormity of what your job is when you look down and you see, um, for example, you know, some young person, maybe 20 years old, who's got parents that love him or her, and you're there um, before the body is moved. And as every time you walk into a crime scene, it really is like walking into a three-dimensional puzzle. And you, you know, you having that the, the senses of it, like you, like a case once of a murder of 7-Eleven, the 7-Eleven clerk, these two skinheads went in and viciously murdered this poor man behind the counter. And it was just, they were trying to rob him and they were probably high on methamphetamine, but mostly they were just, they were violent idiots. And they killed him before he could even open the register for him. They ran off into the night. And that was a scene that we went to. And we were waiting outside uh, to make sure that we had a search warrant. And it's uh, a lot of the jobs ensuring that the police are crossing every T and dotting every I to make sure that nothing is ever suppressed down the line. So we're waiting for the search warrant to get signed by the judge from the outside the parking lot. It was the middle of February. It had to be the coldest night in Southern California I ever remember. And so I'm, I am shivering. Um, and eventually we go inside. The whole crime is on tape because it's 7-Eleven. Um, and as it turns out, one of the guys got back to their getaway car and left the other one there. So when, when the police dogs find some dude at four in the morning in shorts and a t-shirt because he stripped off all his outer clothing. Um, and he said, oh, I was at a party nearby. You know, I, you wouldn't necessarily know that if you're just reading a But I remember freezing my butt off. And there's just no way on God's green earth that anybody in Irvine was hanging out in shorts and a t-shirt that night. So clearly it was beyond suspicious. You just read in a police report, it's like, yeah, we found that there's a guy in the bushes down the street, or, or appeared to be in the bushes down the street, dogs found, you know, um, and he's like, yeah, is that a, like it, being there and feeling the cold made it so obvious immediately that this guy was involved, and of course, then we wound up with DNA confirming that he, he was, and he was later 
accused of committing another murder in prison. So so that sort of thing, going to the crime scene, you never know what you're going to see or feel or perceive that will stick out in your mind. And then the jury doesn't know that you're ever personally there, but you can, once you're, once you actually see it and perceive it in that way, you'll never forget it. And you, you know, you're trying a case that way. You remember every detail because you were there. And of course you, you can immediately spot something on a police report that isn't there to ensure that the police officer testifies correctly. You know, you can correct any mistakes because you were actually, there you saw it and, it and it makes you a much better prosecutor to go to the crime scene in my opinion i think every jurisdiction should do it that way and almost nobody does and look in in the 17 years i was in that unit i never i never lost a case especially not one that i went to the scene you were on call 24 7 how do you have a life i'm trying to figure out exactly that question right now um how do you have a life um first of all i loved the job okay i really did i loved the job i absolutely loved working with the police. I loved working with the detectives. I loved solving the puzzles. Uh, and I might've loved it a little bit too much because it sort of was a huge aspect of my life. So how do you have a life? You have an awesome life when that is your life. When you're dedicated to doing everything you can to master the craft of trying those kinds of cases and trying to be a student of it and reading everything I could and learning about cross-examination from attorneys that wrote books a hundred years ago. And really trying to become a master at the craft of trying cases. So life was murder for a lot of those years. You know, like there's a, you guys watch Ted Lasso. Oh, love Ted Lasso. Yes. Okay, Ted Lasso. Remember, I forgot the character's name, but he kept saying football is life. He's yes. one of the players. Football <laughs> yes. is life. Yeah. But when you're in the homicide unit, if you are, you know, for, I, I had such good bosses for those years. I had such supportive superiors. I worked with such great cops that, you know, homicide unit was life. Now, a lot of my girlfriends back then probably wouldn't appreciate me saying that now, but <laughs> it's brutal on relationships. Um, it just is. I um, bet. Yeah. I mean, I had one one case where I was out with a woman I was dating. We'd been together for seven or eight months. And in the middle of dinner, I got a call. I had a double in Costa Mesa. And by me being there as the prosecutor, especially at that point in my career, because I'd I'd been in the unit a long time. And so for the detectives, it's far better for the integrity of the case. It's better for the criminal defendant. Ultimately, if there's a lawyer there to help make sure that the search warrants are correct, make sure that everything is done by the book and ethically to ensure the integrity of the case. And in my experience, no good detective would ever cut a corner or do anything to gain advantage, but they may make a mistake that if you're there, you can help them avoid. So middle of dinner, birthday dinner, it's like, uh, we got to go. And I drove her back and she actually made the comment on the way back. She goes, no, I got to say, this is the worst birthday I've ever had in my life. <laughs> um, and, and I feel bad about that. I mean, it's hard on relationships, but between her or, or that job and my cops and those poor victims, um, I chose my victims and not her. So that relationship didn't last that much longer after that night. So it's tough on that. I never got married. I never had kids um, because truly I, my great love, at least at that point in my life, was those cases, as weird as that might sound. I can see how after a while it would probably consume you because if you say something does happen with that whole protocol, then the defense would find that little hole and then that person would get off, right? That's right. I mean, worst case scenario, that's exactly right. You know, I'm at dinner and say, hey guys, I'm at birthday dinner. I'll see you tomorrow. And I don't go. If there's some sort of mistake that I might've caught, then yeah, that's, and that was, that wound up being a very high profile absolutely horrific murder. At the time, it looked like it was your run-of-the-mill average domestic violence murder, as, as weird as that may sound. And it wound up being a super twisted, horribly diabolical case involving the murder of two young people. And their families were as heartbroken as any case I can ever remember. And I needed to be there. And that was a wild one. So yeah, it's tough on relationships. A lot of times in that unit, for the people that are dedicated there's kind of two different types of lawyers. There's just shy of about 300 attorneys, so 300 prosecutors in the Orange County DA's office, give or take. And there's roughly eight or nine in the homicide unit. So it's very difficult to get a spot in there. And some people would come in towards the end of their career and do a couple of years. 
and go off and do other wonderful things like go to the bench or go into management. But there was a, a cadre of us for about 10 years and all we wanted to do was the next case. Essentially, there's three groups. There's people that come in that are single, like I did, and they tend to remain single while they're in the unit. They're married, and either at that point they leave um, the unit or they stay and they get divorced. It's kind of the way that went a lot of times. And there were certain semi-hires that somehow managed to have wonderful relationships with their spouses and balance it and be great lawyers. I'm not smart enough to have been <laughs> able to figure that out. How many cases would you be juggling at a time? Well, when I left, I think I had 26 murders on my case, uh, which I think had, I counted this one point. I may not be exactly, but I think of those, I had 32 victims. So 26 separate cases, which involved 32 victims, because some of them were multiple murder. One of those cases was the Golden State Killer, uh, D'Angelo. So I had the four Orange County cases Oh wow! Um, that I was prosecuting when I left. How did you get that case? Was he in Orange County when he got caught? He was in Sacramento. No, he was in Sacramento when he got caught, but he was such a prolific predatory monster that he moved throughout the state. And one of the places that he committed a series of murders was Orange County. So it was from like late 70s, early 80s era. And so there's no statute of limitations on murder. So when the DNA finally came back to him, they were able to link him to the four Orange County murders. And that was still active at the point I retired from the DA's office. So it wound up being handled by other prosecutors when I left. Does that bother you at all? Because you were working on it and you couldn't finish it? Or you you feel not like you wanted to finish all those caseloads? Um, no, that one certainly bothered me. And there was other prosecutors from other jurisdictions that were awesome. So first of all, it was just a horrific case. And I really wanted to bring justice to those families. But decisions were being made in that case at a higher level than just the trial lawyers. I was in Sacramento. They had to sort of team up with all the different attorneys from the different jurisdictions. There were murders in, in Santa Barbara and Ventura uh, and Sacramento and Orange County. So there was a bunch of elected DAs kind of had to get together on that. So when I left, I certainly did not miss the politics of that case, but I would have preferred to finish it. But then the decision was made to let him plead guilty as opposed to see it through with the death penalty. So there was never a trial in the end on that one anyway. But that was a little different because it was a cold case because of the DNA. So that wasn't one, you know, the typical routine. Like I said, I'd go to the scene, I would attend the autopsy. And then I would meet with the parents, usually right after we made the charging decision. And I would sit down with the family and pass the box of tissues to them because it's so horrific. And the goal under those circumstances really was to just let them know that the nadir of human suffering, that there was at least a couple of people that cared. And the police I worked with were wonderful in, you know, the detectives who are investigating homicides tend to be really smart, dedicated professionals in my experience. And in that unit, I was in a position where I could at least offer a little bit of kindness to these poor families as they're going through it. And also the Orange County Homicide Unit, we did all the homicides in the county with the exception of gang cases. Gang cases went to a separate unit and that's a different kind of murder in a lot of ways. Oftentimes it's street justice. Oftentimes the family of the victim or gang families with multi-generational criminal activity and all that sort of thing. The people, our victims in the homicide unit were 7-Eleven clerks and kids that were murdered and the family members of victims of domestic violence. They were people that almost universally we could relate to as productive, nice members of the community that didn't deserve what they were going through. So we could offer them kindness. And that's why I always gave them my personal cell phone. I never regretted doing that. I never had anybody abuse it. And that was an important part of the job. And, I, and I'll tell you another thing. When you have one where, especially on the tough ones, on the, maybe it's an old cold case that has been refused a bunch of times or something where just the evidence is tough. Sometimes some cases are thinner than others, but you, you know the guy did it and you take a run at him. And when the family goes through that and they understand the complexities of the case and the trial, and if you go up against a really experienced or very skillful defense lawyer, and they see it all play out and you bring justice to the family and you convict somebody who did it and thought they could get away with it. Um, and you get a hug from one of those moms 
or one of those dads at the end of that process is the most fulfilling experience I've ever had in life. Being able to help somebody go through that sort of pain and holding their hand through that entire horrific process and then bringing it home for them in the end was immensely satisfying, um, especially in the old cases where they've been submitted multiple times for prosecution and been refused. Those are incredibly gratifying. Why would they be refused? Because there's not enough evidence? Yeah, sometimes they would be refused for investigative follow-up. But there's a two-part ethical analysis that a prosecutor has to go through before they file a case. The first is 100% they must subjectively believe that the person did it. And the second part is they must believe subjectively that the evidence is strong enough that they have a reasonable likelihood of obtaining a conviction. So there's plenty of those where the prosecutor would review it and go, I know the guy did it. I just don't think I can prove it. And that's kind of a, an individual line. You know, my mentor and supervisor was a man named Lou Rosenblum, who was a master at homicides. He was, as a line prosecutor, he, he prosecuted 67 murders in 12 years as a deputy DA before he became a supervisor, and he won them all. It's an impossible statistical line. And I mean, I did 52 in 17 years. He did 67 in 12. And the guy, he is absolutely phenomenal. But he told me when I came in, he goes, there's different kinds of murders. There's, you know, baby deaths, for example, child abuse resulting in death. There's serial killers. There's conspiracies to commit murder for money. There's gang murders. Every one of those is very, very different. So there's this taxonomy of murders and the types of murders. And Lou was like, look, it takes about five years before you get a sample of enough of those of the different kinds to the point that you really feel comfortable as a prosecutor. So a lot of times a case would come in and somebody reviewing it might have had a year or two, but they might not have encountered that. Another category of homicide would be no body cases. Like if the body hasn't been recovered, that's a, its own specialty. And until you do one, you, you don't know how strong or weak it is until you actually present one to a jury and you start to get that sense. For example, I mean, a lot of people think that no body cases would be really difficult. And in fact, I think they're easier because no jury wants to give the benefit to a murderer of having successfully gotten rid of a body. And another thing is when you have to prove somebody is dead, that means you get to call their grandma to talk about how they never missed Christmas dinner or their best friend who said that they never missed the big game or whatever it is, the jury sees a human being there. And you don't understand the impact of that until you try a couple. You won't try a couple of those until you've been in the unit for a while. So a lot of times those cases get submitted and refused because sometimes the prosecutor doesn't understand the power of the evidence, but a more experienced prosecutor might. So it's really subjective. And sometimes they got refused for very good reason. And years later, technology catches up to them. And I, I had a bunch of those, of course, DNA being the obvious one. But there's all kinds of advances in forensic science. Like there's a thing called the Niven system which deals with expended shell casings and the science of when a firearm is used at a crime scene, the shell casings that get ejected from the handgun that are usually littered all over the crime scene. There's been huge advances forensically in the identification of those. And now that they can not only match those to types of firearms, uh, like the beyond like the, you know, nine millimeter or that's a 38 or whatever it may be, they can match it to the exact gun now. So we filed a case based largely on advances in that sort of technology. I had another one that was footprint evidence came in. The killer stepped in blood and he had socks on. And so it was the shape of his footprints. Well, huge advances in that. You never read or hear about that. So a lot of cases, technology and modern forensic science will catch up to the bad guy to the point that we can file it. How long would a case be from like you show up at the scene and you had the trial and they've been convicted, could that take years? It always took years, yes. Now, different jurisdictions tend to go at different speeds. L.A. County, sort of counterintuitively, because it's such a mess, they tend to be pretty good about pushing their murder cases along. Orange County, on the other hand, um, it's, it's sort of the opposite. When you have every murder case is a potential life sentence. And when you have appellate scrutiny for life cases, especially if it's going to be one of the more extreme cases involving life without possibility of parole, they tend to get a very high degree of appellate scrutiny. So judges want to be very careful about pressing a defense lawyer into trial when they say they're not ready. Because if they say they're not ready and the judge makes them go, the fear is it will get reversed for what's called IAC or ineffective assistance of counsel. So they tend to have a blank check for the number of continuances. 
And especially if the case is complex, there will usually be a lot of discovery, like the Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer case, for example, because there have been so many task forces and because he was such a prolific rapist and murderer all through the state, there were over 1 million pages of discovery in that case. So that so the defense can look at that and go, hey, judge, I've got a million pages that I have to read, like literally a million pages that I have to read before I'm going to be ready for trial. So a lot of those cases are effectively blank checks of continuances. But also as a prosecutor, you want to make sure that everything's fair. Your job also, and a lot of people don't know this, your job is fundamentally to ensure the integrity of the justice system. And you've got to make sure that the evidence that you're using was lawfully obtained and that you are scrupulously treating the defendant fairly. Your ethical obligation is to ensure that not just that the victim's family gets justice, but that the defendant themselves get justice. As counterintuitive as that may sound, that is your fundamental job as a prosecutor is to make sure that things are done right. And uh, one of the questions I get a lot, you know, <laughs> I've, I've had at bars or parties. So, you know, now that you're out of the office, was there anybody you ever prosecuted where you you just didn't think they did it. I was just going to ask you that. Right. I, I, I have that yeah. one written down as a question. Yeah. So yeah. here's the way it works. All right. You're, you have an ethical obligation as a prosecutor at all times. If you ever, even for a second, you entertain any subjective doubt as to the, as the efficacy or the validity of your case. In other words, if you doubt for one second that you charge the right person with the right numbers, your duty is to dismiss it immediately. A lot of people don't know that. It is the one area in the practice of law. I mean, if you think about it, like a real estate lawyer, their job is to represent their clients, you know, to go in and fight for their clients or any sort of civil lawyer or defense lawyers. Like the job of a lawyer is to also represent their client. The prosecutor in the United States, you know, the United States Constitution is pretty much the only lawyer I can think of where their job is they absolutely must subjectively believe every single thing they argue. In, every time I stood in front of a judge or a jury, I believed to my core core everything that I was saying, because if you don't, as a prosecutor, your obligation ethically is to dismiss it. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's the way it should work if you really think about it. So the problem isn't I've got all these guys that I doubt did it. The struggle is all the guys on your desk that you know did it, but you just don't think the evidence is strong enough to convince a jury. That's where you grind your teeth a lot is what am, what am I missing in this investigation? And how long would a case like that take for evidence to finally come, more evidence to come, or just sometimes those cases just hang for more years? Yeah, I mean, look, I did the Rodney Alcala case. Now, that was just a function of the appellate courts, but I, I tried that thing uh, around 2010, and that was a murder from 1977. Um, I mean, gosh. I had cases from the 80s, cold cases from the 70s. You know, those are cases where DNA caught up to the defendants. I mean, I did the, the Bill McLaughlin case. I was 15 years old when we filed that. Uh, Kathy Torres was 15 years old when we filed that one. For the ones that, that we would actually go to, the average was at least two or three years, probably, between commission of the crime and the trial. And those are the simple ones. The complicated ones, they tended to be older than that. Yeah, I remember there was this case in Orange because it happened actually in my where I grew up and where I work. And it was and I felt like it went pretty quickly. It was this um, younger kid that was killing homeless people. And yeah, it was the Marine. Yes. Yeah, I saw the vi I saw the videos on that and it was horrific. Yeah. Yeah. But that one didn't go to trial because he committed suicide in the jail. Oh, I heard that. So, like drank like. Yeah, like, that's right drank right. something right yep he was a he was a marine and i think he was deployed and i think the story was he, he was he never fired his weapon i think he went to iraq never fired his weapon and felt like he was gypped and wanted to kill somebody so he started killing homeless men with a k-bar which is a marine corps knife and some of those are caught on video my good friend Susie price prosecuted that and she's a phenomenal lawyer and uh yeah, he drank Drano. So that one, yeah, that one went quick, but only because he committed suicide in jail. Otherwise, that would have taken years. Yeah. Yeah, because I was wondering, and we were talking about how long this takes. That popped into my head because I was thinking, I remember that feeling like it was very quick that he was, I. so he, that's what it was. He killed himself because, it, and it didn't go to trial. Yeah, you were right. I mean, that was within probably six months of his arrest and it was resolved. 
one of the things that keeps popping into my head is that you talk about having enough evidence to convict them. And I'm curious, what makes you decide I have enough? Can I think about for me personally, the Casey Anthony case? To me, obviously, the jurors felt like there was a breakdown in evidence there and that there wasn't enough tangible evidence to convict Casey, but they felt like they clearly had enough evidence. So how do you determine what is enough or what is enough evidence that's going to make sense to a jury who doesn't really get exposure to this all the time? It just seems like there's so many complicated layers when you're trying to decide if you have enough. There are, and it's as much a feeling as anything else. There's kind of this line that you you just know you got it. By the time, for example, I got to the homicide unit, I, I tried, I don't know, around 80 jury trials. And so you get a sense at that point, what is going to be persuasive, what's not, what evidence is good, what's what evidence is bad. And you also get a, you also know where your own personal abilities are, your own strengths. You know, sometimes it might be a case where the defendant's going to have to testify and you might feel very confident in your cross-examination or one prosecutor might feel less confident in their cross-examination so they know that it's going to be a bigger issue. It's, it's a very subjective thing, which is one of the reasons why, at least the way the Orange County DA's office used to work, it doesn't really work that way anymore. But the idea that you want to have professionals who are totally dedicated to that field working in your vertical units that are, you treat them well, you give them support from above and you let them become real pros in whatever their subject matter is, whether it's fraud, sexual assault, homicide, gangs, you give them the support to really learn and master the craft of trying those cases. And that's when you get experienced decision-making that benefits the community. Because when you have a bunch of pros in there, you tend to get results in the community that the DA is serving becomes much safer as a result. When you have people that and the philosophy is a little bit different, or you've got people that are there for shorter periods, or they don't have the support of their uh, superiors, what you get is you get uh, timid decision-making where people don't file cases. And when it comes to homicide, literally that means murderers go free. And unfortunately, depending on who the elected official is, that's how that goes. Um, for years and years, we had a district attorney in Orange County who was an actual alumni of the homicide unit. So he totally got it. And it was great working for him because he he understood how it worked and he understood what a homicide prosecutor needed support-wise. He got it. And when you go and meet with him over the high-profile things, you were talking to somebody that understood. Unfortunately for the homicide prosecutors, they're now, he's no longer there. But, um, but yeah, so it's a subjective decision that each individual prosecutor has to make. You know, do I feel like I have enough can I convince a jury based on this evidence? And sometimes the file gets handed to somebody else. Somebody rotates out or they retire or whatever. And they look at it and their eyes bug out because they don't have the same level of experience, skill, or confidence. And those cases get scary for them. How many cases take the plea deal and never go before a jury? During the previous administration in Orange County, basically the unwritten rule was if a murder was committed, we let a jury sort it out. So we didn't, for virtually every other unit, um, sexual assault, fraud, every one of those will, you'll have a, you'll have a series of discussions with the defense about whether or not you can resolve the case prior to trial. In the homicide unit for all those years, we really didn't engage in that. Every case was filed with the idea that it was going to trial. And that essentially is the way that worked for a really long time, for decades in Orange County. It's changed a little bit now. They're doing a lot more wheeling and dealing on homicides, which is controversial in some areas in law enforcement. But, you know, um, uh, who was it? I believe one of the presidents said elections have consequences. So that's one of the new features on the legal landscape of Orange County, that they will entertain a lot more pre-trial dispositions cases. Do you think that causes more potentially innocent people to take a deal because they're more fearful of what sentencing they'd get from a jury? No, I I really, when it came to our unit and the level of professionalism of the police, at least in Orange County, the the departments tend to be very well funded. There's the sheriff's department where the detectives do a bunch of homicides. And in my experience, very professional with their investigations. So there are steps that have to happen 
in those investigations as well as procedurally. Like, first of all, the detective's got to be convinced that the person that they're arresting did it. Then the filing DA's got to be convinced. Then the arraigning judge has to be convinced. Then you go to preliminary hearing, and that, that judge has got to be convinced. There's so many checks to that. You don't see a whole lot of innocent people pleading guilty in Orange County. Yeah, I've never, in fact, the homicide unit, I never saw a single example of somebody that was even questionable, um, whoever pled or was convicted, in my view. How many people get the death penalty? Is that pretty rare that they would get that in Orange County, at least, or anywhere? So that's that's a really that's a really good question. So I was talking earlier about the special circumstance committee. So a generic murder does not have a special circumstance. So that means they're not eligible for the death penalty. So the, the vast majority of, of murder cases are not special circumstance cases. So, you know, bar fights, domestic violence, the baby deaths that we were talking about, um, all of those sorts of things, none of those are eligible for the death penalty. So of the minority of cases, a vast minority of murder cases in general, when there's a special circumstance alleged, so robbery, rape, arson, multiple victims, things like that, when you have those cases, it would go to committee. Our committee, for the 15 years I was on it, so for the worst of the worst of the murders, we only sought the death penalty in less than 4% of the cases that were eligible. So it's incredibly rare. Wow. Yes, it's incredibly rare that we would seek it. And the criteria, essentially, um, is, number one, it, there has to be zero doubt in your mind or in the committee's mind that the person did it. So they're on camera, there's overwhelming evidence of some form, there's a confession, there's DNA, usually all of that sort of thing. Um, so there's no doubt that the person did it. And the second thing is it's got to be it's got to be shocking to to you as a prosecutor having seen it all. You know, serial rapist murdering a bunch of different women, that's something that would qualify. Um, a robbery where um, somebody lines up the employees of a store on their knees helpless and executes them. The rape and murder of a child. It's only the shocking ones with overwhelming evidence that in our view for all those years merited seeking the death penalty because it's number one, it's a lot more work. It's a much more serious decision. And of course, we have a moratorium on the death penalty in the state of California now anyway. So it is a symbolic effort that is, um, it's consuming. It takes a ton of resources, a ton of time, and the case really has to be worth it lack of their terms. So it's very, very rare. And of course, we have not had an execution in the state of California in, I don't know, two decades. But that's what I was going to ask. Yeah, it's been forever. Yeah. And don't see that changing in the state of California. I don't see the political will coming around and all of a sudden we'll be executing people. But for the families, what happens at the end of those? So it's a bifurcated thing. You go through the guilt phase where you prove the person did it. And then you have the same jury and you come in for what's called the penalty phase. And in the penalty phase, the jury's job is to weigh the aggravating versus mitigating circumstances. So if the aggravating circumstances substantially outweigh the mitigating circumstances, then the jury is entitled to, they're not required, but they're entitled to vote for death. And if they don't, they're required to vote by without possibility of parole. That's the way it works. So again, every benefit goes towards the defendant. And for the families in cases like that, where their loved one was tied up in a corner and executed for fun, or a a little girl is kidnapped and raped and strangled to death for fun. When the jury comes back in cases like that with the victim's family sitting there and they announce their verdict, and the verdict is, essentially is, your loved one was so valuable to the community that this person, even though we all know he's never going to be executed, still deserves to die for what he did. There is some value in that, in my experience. And it depends on the family, but there are certainly family members that feel very strongly about that. And my view for the for those very, very rare extreme cases was if we could bring just a tiny bit of solace to the surviving family members, even with the symbolic nature of the death penalty, it was worth it for me personally to do the extra work. For me, the decision is all about families. And each person, like, say, because now that you just said that the possibility without parole, I was thinking about Charlie Manson and his whole group. And, you know, some of the ladies are always up for parole mm -hmm. or whatever. So does it depend on what your role is within that crime of what sentence you get? Like, if there's four people that have committed a crime, there's one ringleader. Yeah. One of the interesting features about California law is... The Manson murders, I believe, were 1974, if I've got my year right. There were gigantic convulsions, for lack of a better term, regarding the death penalty across the country. 
in that one year when that happened. So Manson was originally sentenced to death, but then the death penalty law in the state of California was found to be unconstitutional by the United States Supreme Court. California and a whole bunch of other states that had similar language in the law that mandated imposition of the death penalty. And they said that it should never be mandatory. So they had to go back and change the law. And so the reason why Leslie Van Houten, Charles Manson, you know, Tex Watson and all the rest of that cabal of murderous hippie monsters. Um, the reason why they get parole hearings is a function of California law because of the law in the early 70s. So theoretically, if they committed the same murders today, they would not be entitled to parole hearings because of the nature of life without possibility of parole. I wouldn't be surprised if that changed at some point, if the legislature changed it and allowed for applications for early release for compassionate grounds and all that sort of thing. Um, I think that the parole board generally did a pretty good job of treating the Manson family the way they should have been treated. Um, and in other words, keeping them in. You know, the problem with parole hearings is the families, the surviving families, have to go through this nightmarish process where they have to attend the hearings or submit letters. Um, it's a very, very difficult thing for them to go through because they never want the person to get out. And I'm just at the stage now, you know, I'm at about the 20 year mark from the, from the time where I came into the homicide unit. So some of my earlier cases, especially for the second degree murders, they are coming up for parole now and I'm getting letters from families and phone calls from family members asking for my help and opposing the release of the people that murdered their loved ones. Yeah, because that's got to be anxiety thinking that it's all said and done. And then yes. in 20 years, you got to go through it again and then have that anxiety thinking that's what right. happens if they get out. Right. What happens if they get out? And sometimes these people will threaten family members at the time. So it's like, Ugh. you know, not only not only the anxiety of the person being released and no longer serving prison time for the murder of their loved one, but also the potential danger of them coming back at them. So it's horrible for families to go through that process. And sometimes, depending on the circumstance of the murder, there are certain cases where I think it's appropriate to release them under certain circumstances. Yeah, I was just going to ask that if they do get released. Yeah. And look, for a lot of those guys, you know, I don't know about a lot, for some of them, their highest ambition in life after spending 15 or 20 years in prison is to be able to come home from a day of hard work and some job and sit on the couch and watch a Laker game and eat some potato chips. Like that is like the, the greatest thing they could aspire to. And they're not, a lot of them are not going to be a risk to anybody. And I'm not talking about sexual predators, people that, that murdered out of cruelty, people that murdered in domestic violence situations. There are entire classes of murderers who, in my opinion, are not going to reform. All the therapy in the world isn't going to make their desire to kill people for sexual gratification. It's not going to make that go away. And I think the literature bears that out, that when it comes to psychopaths or truly predatory human beings, you can give them all the therapy in the world, but they're never changing. But for some of these old gangsters that were in the back of a car during a drive-by 25 years ago, I've gone to a lot of those parole hearings, and a lot of those guys, if they're not running with the gangs in prison, They've got family support. They can move in next door to you and you would never be in any danger. So it all depends on the type of case and the circumstances of the killing. But usually when they're like the psychopaths and the ones that you're talking about, generally they don't get released on parole. Generally, you're not to God's ears and the parole board's ears. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, the pendulum of criminal justice swings back and forth. If you look historically through the state of California, the early 70s, like if you look at those great vigilante movies like Death Wish with Charles Bronson, Dirty Harry. You know, a lot of those were written in the early 70s where there was a real kind of a public fear of violent criminals. And that's because back in those days, the law was very lenient and there really was a revolving door and it was a problem across the country where people that would commit horrific crimes would get out. Uh, Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer, he's one of the ones that I prosecuted. And he kidnapped and raped an eight-year-old girl. She's in a coma for 32 days. And he was released by the California Parole Board after 34 months for that crime. And he went on and he murdered dozens of people after that. He had five in New York and he had, I think, five in California and another one in Wyoming. He was suspected of murders in, in Europe, in Texas, all after he'd been released by the Parole Board. So it's insane. It's insane. Now, hopefully we're more sophisticated. We understand that now. But the pendulum swings back and forth. And then the public will get fed up with that. And but going back to ancient Rome and probably the codes of Hammurabi, right? I think that there's always going to be a certain segment of any society that is predatory, you know, and, and 
the math on it is pretty simple. The higher number of the real bad guys that we put in prison for longer, the less innocent victims you're going to have. And the more lenient we become, the more we want to hug them and let them go, the more innocent victims there are going to be. And unfortunately, it's like in California with the Polly Klaus case, where a guy who never should have been released from prison was released, kidnapped, sexually brutalized, and murdered this poor little innocent girl. And she became the public face for criminal justice reform back in the 90s, where they enacted a bunch of tough on crime statutes that helped lower violent crime substantially. But, you know, then the public kind of forgets how bad it was. And pretty soon they take their eye off the ball and the laws loosen up and you end up with the sharp rises in violent crime again. And I think it, it goes back and forth. And it's that's so weird to me. You think it would just stay consistent like this works and this is what we're going to do. And it just stays. You would think. <laughs> The pendulum swings back and forth. That's interesting to me. I want to go back for a clarifying question real quick, Matt. So if, if I had a family member get murdered, I couldn't press you to push for, um, the death penalty. The family has no say in that that's solely removed from them. Well, okay. So, um, really good question. Under California law, there's Article 1, Section 28 of the California Constitution, also known as the Victim's Bill of Rights. And what has been defined as a victim includes the extended family of a victim of violent crime. And part of that law is the district attorney is required to meet with you. Now, they don't have to follow that. It's known as a right without a remedy. Like, that's the law, but there's no you have no recourse if they refuse to do it. And some DAs, honestly, are horrible about their treatment of victims. Um, so you, under California law, you would have a right to sit down with the DA and express your views and say, I really want, I really want to pursue the death penalty or I really don't want to pursue the death penalty. And the district attorney would then factor that in in the decision as to whether or not they would seek it. So that's the way it's supposed to work. I see. Okay. And then another question that I had, which I guess isn't completely applicable to you since you don't really work in drug cases. And that's kind of the only example I could think of, but do you ever have moral qualms about sentencing a case that's that you've prosecuted? For example, the mandatory minimums for a nonviolent drug offenders? Yeah. So yeah, the mandatory minimums were federal sentencing guidelines. And I think they've eliminated most of those now. I'm pretty sure. But for the state cases, there really are no mandatory minimums regarding drug cases. So what a, a judge on pretty much any drug case always had the option of probation. Another thing that a lot of people don't understand is with three strikes, the judges in California, it's a case called Romero, have since, I don't know, six months after that law passed, they've had the ability to strike strikes independently. So the judges have been empowered with great discretion on those. And when it comes to moral qualms and sentencing, you do encounter that every once in a while. But again, your job as a prosecutor is you got to do the right thing every time. So I had a case once against Christopher Darden, who's a defense lawyer from OJ fame, right? And this was a Watson murder. It was a guy who had lived a good life, um, and he had one bad night where he gets in a fight with his wife and he gets drunk and gets behind the wheel. And he winds up crashing into a family on the way to a 13-year-old's birthday party. And it was ca caused carnage. There was a 10-year-old boy who died. The mother died. The father's permanently disabled. Another girl had brain damage. It was absolutely horrific what happened. So as a prosecutor, I reviewed that case. And it was so bad. And his behavior was so bad that for that family and the survivors of that, I was charging him with murder. So I charged him with murder to do the right thing by the victims. But when the preliminary hearing came and went, you know, we're in court, the judge is done, he's been bound over, and the defendant started to bawl uncontrollably. He was, he was weeping in the courtroom. And I began to kind of reach the conclusion that this guy really had profound remorse for what he had done. And so we go through the trial, we convict the guy, so it comes down to sentencing. Now, I have two, two people that have died, but I believe, and, and this guy had lived an exemplary life. He, he had a good job. He was married. He, he had never been in trouble a day in his life. So you've got this guy that's looking at, he can either do 18 to life or 33 years to life. So he wouldn't be eligible for parole hearing for about 30 years if I had the court sentence the two murder victims consecutively. And so 
the question was whether you have moral qualms. I don't know if moral qualm is the right way to put it, but I wrestled with that. And you're supposed to do that as a prosecutor. Because if I go in and ask the court to sentence consecutively, the court would certainly be justified in doing that because two lives were lost. On the other hand, I got a guy who's lived this exemplary life who had one really horrible night. So what do I do with that? Who I was absolutely convinced had genuine, heartfelt, soul-wrenching remorse for what he had done and the harm that he had caused. So what do you do? So I went in on that case and I asked the judge to run them concurrently. So he served both sentences at the same time and he was released a couple of years ago. But it's great. I, I feel like I made the right decision on that. But but also, you know, it, you flip back and forth. I like to think I did right by the family by charging him with murder and holding him accountable for murder. I know I did right by him by asking the court to run him, you know, concurrently as opposed to consecutively. So these are very weighty issues. And these are things that good prosecutors struggle with every day. I had a, a, another mentor, Lou is one, but another mentor named Rick King, who's now a judge in Orange County, who's just a great man. And he was my supervisor in the sexual assault unit. And I had a case with a multiple victim. There's a provision in California law that if you have a child molester that has multiple victims, it's called a multiple victim life enhancement. And essentially what this guy had done is he had he molested one brother pretty substantially. And the other one, he like touched his leg and and that was it. And then that was the kid that that freaked out and reported. And I, I remember struggling with that one. It's like, here's this guy that he's the second molest was so de minimis compared to the first. And I don't have information of other victims. And I struggled with it. And my supervisor actually said, good, you should struggle. It's your responsibility to struggle. Just know that when you go through this process, racking your brain about what's right and what's wrong, whatever decision you make, I'm backing you 100%. That's the way the DA's office is supposed to work. That's the way it worked back then. And that's the wise boss, you know, and because you've got a lot of power as a prosecutor over the lives of people. And the way that one ended, by the way, that guy, as I'm wringing my hands trying to figure out what to do with him, he jumped bail, fled to Israel, and had no regard whatsoever for any of the internal struggling that were going on. And then we found another couple kids that he made advances to. So we, you know, I, oh yeah, and then I eventually wound up charging the um, multiple victim life enhancement on that, and he got life in prison as he deserved. But But at the time, you know, as the investigation's ongoing, it, when it comes to charging, when the cases first come in, the investigation's going to go on for several months, at least. So a lot of times when you're making that initial charging decision, it's right after the person's been caught. So you, oftentimes you don't have all the facts, but that's another example of that. Like, ring, you, you struggle with some of those, and and you should struggle as a prosecutor. It seems like on TV, they portray this particular job is very black and white, but it seems like you operate in a lot of like gray areas. There's tons of gray. It's black and white when you have a murder and you're trying to figure out who did it. And when the murder's clear, it's like Colonel Mustard in the library with a candlestick, right? Like when it's all about the identity of the person, yeah, it's black and white. If you have a murder rape victim and it's product of sexual assault, it's black and white. You just got to figure out who did it. But a lot of these other cases, there's plenty of gray. And you got to figure out what it is. Is it a first-degree murder? Is it a second-degree murder? Is it voluntary manslaughter? You know, I had a Dirty John case. That was one of mine. And that's one where, like, hey, this is self-defense. Tara Newell did nothing wrong here. In fact, she's a hero for putting an end to this guy. So you have to have an open mind when you review those cases. But it can be any one of those things. Um, but most of the time, there's a lot of gray in these things. Um, were they acting under defense of another? Was were they adequately provoked? Did the victim do something horrible that, that brought this about? You, every case is unique. Every case is different. You have to keep an open mind. But there's a lot more gray than there is black and white in that job, however it's portrayed. What would second degree and third degree be? Yeah, the example of, um, of degrees. So fundamentally, criminal law is all based on common sense. Okay, so and it goes back to literally these concepts go back to the first written languages in Mesopotamia you know, thousands of years ago. And it's, and a lot of these things, you know, human beings kill other human beings under a variety of different circumstances and some are far worse than others. So a second degree murder, the example I always gave is two guys in a bar. So you got two cowboys in a bar, one of them insults the other one and the insulted cowboy's got a gun on his hip and he pulls the gun and shoots the other cowboy dead on purpose, right? So it's like, he's insulted, he pulls the gun, shoots him, meant to do it. That's a second-degree murder. So he has the intent to kill, and it's not lawful. It's not self-defense. It's not adequately provoked. 
that's an example of a second degree murder. Take the same two cowboys, same two bar. These can be moderate cowboys or or like <laughs> saloon cowboys. It can be whatever. And he doesn't have a gun on him. And he, he goes, you know what? I'm going to kill the son of a bitch. So he walks out of the saloon and, or the honky-tonk, whatever. Goes to his horse on the post or his pickup truck. Fishes around. Finds the gun. Goes back into the bar. Searches through the smoke and the piano player and the dance floor and whatever. Finds him. Points the gun at him and shoots him. That's worse than the first one. You know, because now he's had all this time to contemplate it and to consider the consequences of what he's doing. That's a first degree murder. That's murder with premeditation and deliberation. He has had all the time in the world to cool off, to consider what he's doing, and he did it anyway. So you got same two cowboys, same dead cowboy, but different circumstances leading up to it. And, you know, a second degree murder is not as bad as a first. Then you've got special circumstance murders, which are murders committed during other crimes, robberies, rapes, arsons, things like that. Those are worse than murders with P&D, and that's why they get to be special circumstances. And then you've got conspiracies to, to murder for money. You've got psycho serial rapists slash murderers, and we've all read about those. So you've got different kinds of murders, but that would be the difference between a first or a second. If you put, just take those same two cowboys in the bar, and one of the cowboys says, hey, I just wanted to let you know, I, I lit your house on fire and just burned all your kids. And he pulls the gun out and shoots him. Okay, that's when it, that's a situation where it's not lawful self-defense, but we as a society would understand that. That would be probably legally adequate provocation where he has been provoked into taking human life for any reasonable person under those circumstances could be moved to passion or could be moved to kill. So that would be a, an example of a voluntary manslaughter. So as a society, we have categorized these different circumstances where one person kills another and we sort of assign a level of, I mean, for lack of a better way of putting it, a level of badness. It's like, that's that's not self-defense, but it's nowhere near as bad as shooting somebody over an insult. That's the type of case where if we prosecuted that, the judge would strongly consider probation and something like that, in my experience. Because I was thinking about how you hear about people that have gone to the trials of the person that's killed your family member. And I've always thought, how do these people have self-control not to want to kill the person who did this and then right. and they would get in trouble and you know, right. all that stuff well that's that's that also raises a really interesting philosophical point that maybe a little deeper than we need to go to for this podcast <laughs> but but look yeah. there's an array of reasons in society why we put people in prison okay and you'll hear debates about prison reform or criminal justice reform where it, it seems very monochromatic like very very one-dimensional where People think, well, we just we put them there just to punish them. But a huge part of, of, especially when it comes to violent crimes, the social compact or the contract that we have is that society is supposed to punish those people so the family doesn't have to. And when the system is working correctly, when you've got a detective who's done her job and arrested the right person and a prosecutor who's soberly decided to make charges and a judge who's doing their job and a jury who's doing theirs, the way it's supposed to work is the family shouldn't have to do anything because that's the deal we make. It's society takes care of that. We fund law enforcement so that they can be properly trained and competent and the prosecutor's office with our tax dollars so they can be properly trained and competent. And we pay the judge's salary so they can be properly trained and competent. And we bring in a jury and when it's done right and they follow the law, that's the deal that we all make. So the family doesn't have to go and exact justice themselves. It doesn't have to go in and maybe shoot the wrong guy or shoot him. And then the bullet goes to the wall and kills the kid. Like we don't want that. So we need to make sure that as a society, that we have proper punishments that are fair, both to the defendant, but also to the victim's family so that society and the community takes care of retributions. So that the society meets out justice so that the, Bereaved family members don't have to. That's the way it's supposed to work. And and that's w w when you see breakdowns of the criminal justice system. Like I have you know, an ex-girlfriend um, who her family is from Guatemala, where it is a very different criminal justice system. It's common in the rural areas that when you've got a guy who's a problem, a young man who's committing crime or hurting people, the, a group of men will show up in a pickup truck in the middle of the night with masks on and whisk him off into the jungle and he doesn't come home. Like that, like and you see that sense of justice. It's universal. It's not 
wrong is wrong, especially for certain kinds of crime in any human society and probably throughout the years. And we, we don't want to have that here. And, you know, that's like we were talking about before. That's sort of the appeal of the death wish movies from the seventies and early eighties. Like, is that vigilante justice? Because people, I think there's a broad sentiment that they didn't feel that justice was being done and that violent criminals were being held accountable to the degree they should have been. But again, that's when we get back to the pendulum, it swings back and forth. And I'm not saying that to discourage anybody, but you know, people, most people really, I think are motivated by good. Most jurors want to do the right thing. Most judges, prosecutors, defense lawyers, most people in the criminal justice system, in my experience, really do want to do the right thing. And I think that cases most of the time wind up about where they should. Okay. We'll just ask you two last questions, Matt, just fun, silly, and then we'll let you go on with your day. Okay. Mine always is, if you were to pick your last meal, what would it be? Mm, I'm on death row when I have to eat it or just my last meal? Just your last meal. You can be on a beach in Tahiti if you want. You know, I got to go back to the 12-year-old self. I'm thinking... McDonald's cheeseburgers with uh, large French fries and a chocolate milk. I, I pretty much hey, came, in, came into the world with that one. It was probably the first meal I ever remember eating and why not go out. I love it. Well, this one I always like to ask people and I would uh, really like to know what is one of your hobbies? Because it sounds like you work a lot, but what is a hobby you like to do? I surf like a fiend when I'm healthy enough to do it. Uh, I love to scuba dive. Um, I play really bad golf. Um, okay. I do all of those things. And by the way, I haven't eaten McDonald's probably 20 years um what? so not not part of my standard fare at all but um yeah if i gotta it just sounds really good well, to me maybe right you now. should go hungry. get a big mac right <laughs> <Today>. <laughs> i'll spend the next three days regretting it if i do that thank you so much we really appreciate it and my pleasure happy to come on again. again yeah okay guys yeah okay. thank Have you a great week okay bye-bye thanks take care okay so question of the hour would you do the job? There's a lot of hours. He works a lot, a lot. And you can't do anything. And you kind of, like he said, you have to devote your whole life to it. I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I can miss baseball. I'd love it if I didn't have kids and stuff like that. You know? Okay. If you were like single, single Nikki. If I was single Nikki, I would love to do it. But married with kids Nikki is a little tough, but really, really interesting. I love that he's from my hometown, Orange County. Love it. I mean, hey, shout out Orange County. Right? Real housewives. (laughs) God, that'd be great. Could we bring them in for like a panel of an episode? I'd love that. It was funny because when he was talking about certain things and places, I'm thinking, oh my God, I know where that is. Finally, a place I know where these things are. You can get the visual really well mapped out. Yes, I really could. I felt like I was home again. I thought it was interesting that not all places have it. All counties have this where they have a lawyer that goes to crime scenes and kind of goes along with the process and talks to the families and all that stuff. I thought every place would have that. So that's interesting to know yeah. that they don't. I will say that is just, it's just one of those weird things that I think we're learning as we go through this podcast. Because like even like with the coroner system and the medical examiners, it's so weird that it varies so drastically from yeah. state to state, you know? It is. It's super weird. I admire his tenacity and his work ethic and his dedication and his drive just because like you said you really have to go all, like you go all in yeah you can't be and half, he does. can't be halvesies on this you got to go all no no and so for that I have so much respect and he talks about the families he represents with such compassion and I don't know like a sense of protectiveness I would 100% want Matt in my corner yeah that's what I, I think I think it's really beneficial for the families and for the cops too like you know to make sure that you're crossing every T and dotting every I on a crime scene so mm-hmm. that that person who's going to be going up for a trial that committed this doesn't have a little tiny sliver of, you know, he can get off because you missed something or you didn't do something Yeah, you're right. closing all the, the loopholes. Yeah. And that's an intense amount of pressure, though, too. This is one of those jobs where I don't think you sleep. 
I don't think you eat. No. You know, you are consumed 24-7 because I would be replaying every crime scene. I would be thinking about this angle, that angle. What did I miss? What could what could the potential spin on this be? I feel I would be so anxiety ridden all Please. of the time. I do that at work all the time. When I get home, I'm like, oh, should have used a 5N instead of the 4. <laughs> and oh my God. <laughs> I shouldn't have cut her bangs so short, but then she wanted them short. You know, like I'm telling you, I couldn't, maybe I couldn't do it for that factor because I overanalyze everything. And then even when it's done, I still think about the one tiny little thing that maybe could have been wrong. So maybe yeah. that, yeah, maybe yeah. I can't do the job because of those two factors. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think for me, the mental gymnastics of it all would be... It would just just destroy me as a person. There's like, yeah, that'd be tough. But then to give family the closure, I like that part. But the closure doesn't happen for years. This is another job that it takes years. years. Yes. For years. years. Yeah. And I'm instant gratification on top of everything else. Yeah. I feel like it would just be really hard. Matt, you're awesome. I couldn't do it. Right. Well, until next week, we'll see what comes next. Right. Till next week, guys. So I'm going to be annoying again this episode. If you liked it. Please hit subscribe. Give us some feedback. Nikki and I love to hear from everyone. And if you have guest suggestions, please send those over to us. You can do that through social media or send us an email at hello at body to burial. We'd love to hear from you and we'll see you next week. Okay. See you next week. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We do encourage you to follow us at Instagram at Body to Burial. Hit us up on Twitter at Body to Burial. And you guessed it, you can send us an email to hello at bodytoburial.com. If you have any guest suggestions, just let us know. Please hit the subscribe button or follow button on whatever app you are listening to. Thanks so much, guys. See you next time.